0: Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts Tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome Blockhead listeners to a brand new episode and have we got a treat for you today. Dennis Kitchen is here, and if you don't know that name, I don't know where you've been for the last 50 years in comics, because my gosh, Dennis Kitchen has been involved in just about every aspect of comics over the last 50 years, and he is a living embodiment of independent comics history. He he has been, since 1969, not only a preeminent cartoonist among many, many great cartoonists, but he's also been, of course, the leading light of perhaps the first great independent comics publisher of long standing in the last fifty years, Kitchen Sink Press, who uh, began uh, humbly enough publishing Dennis's own. Comic Mom's Homemade Comics number one in nineteen sixty nine, followed up soon after by Mom's Homemade Comics number two, and then Bijou Funnies number two and then on and on and on homegrown funnies and so many more. Kitchen Sink, of course, published just about everything anybody who was anybody in underground comics from Robert Crumb to Jay Lynch and Skip Williamson to Art Spiegelman to uh, Trina Robbins to S. Clay Wilson the list goes on and on and then well into the the 1980s and 1990s p- publishing great cartoonists uh, wonderful work by Don Simpson on Megaton Man or, or uh, Mark Schultz on uh, Xenozoic hmm. Tales uh, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs and uh, You name it They've been responsible for some of the best Comics over the last 50 years. And not only did Dennis publish the vanguard of cartoonists of his own generation and and those who came after, but he also published those who came before. The masters such as Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman reprinted The Spirit over a course of many, many issues, eighty-some issues of The Spirit magazine. He published Harvey Kurtzman's uh, work that outside of Mad Magazine that might have been lost otherwise. He brought Will Eisner's great graphic novels to the public between uh, the years of 1978 and 1999, uh, before Kitchen Sink closed its doors. Finally, he, he reprinted many of the great comic strips that are, are today being collected by the Library of American Comics at IDW and other places, Fanagraphics and whatnot. He he reprinted some of the best and first reprintings of some of the great comic strips that might have been lost to history otherwise. Uh, Little Abbey, or you know Barney Google or or Flash Gordon and on top of that Dennis has not only been you know cartoonist publisher he's an author he's a, an historian he's an art agent he's been involved in just about any every aspect of, of comics there's just so much to talk about there's such history here and this is only the first part we spent two hours talking together and yet We only got through about half of his career. And uh, so we've got another half to go. And hopefully we're going to sit down and talk more in the new year to to complete this uh, marathon length interview. It's going to be in two parts, one right after another this week. So get ready for it. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy it because Dennis is just such a great raconteur, as as, uh, they say. So without further ado, then. Dennis Kitchen and myself in conversation. Hello, Dennis Kitchen, and welcome to Blockhead. Hey, Jeff, thank you. It's great to have you here. Uh, it's it's re- I have to say I'm really really excited because, boy oh boy, if anybody has an incredible history and story to tell it's certainly you and uh uh just about every cartoonist i ever admired growing up has worked with you at one point or another and uh it's plus you're just such an an extraordinary cartoonist in your own right uh and it's it's just great to have you here so i'm so excited well slidery will get you everywhere jeff yeah Well, and it's easy to do in your case, and uh, because there's just so much great stuff to talk about. And uh, I guess the first thing that strikes me, strikes me is um, you were just recently at New York Comic-Con, were you not? I was. Was that your first con since COVID? Or-
1: yeah, yeah, the first one since New York
0: two years ago. Yeah. And how how did it go? What was it like? What was the environment like? Uh,
1: you know, I, I enjoyed it. Everyone wore a mask. You had to prove you were vaccinated to get in. So that was somewhat comforting. But, you know, I was still a little nervous because I was there with, uh, you know, 100,000 or, or so people. Um, the uh, attendance was down, I understand, from earlier, but it was still, you know, Javits right. was still filled with a lot of people.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I, from the photographs I saw, uh, it, it looked jam packed. And um, it's amazing to think that it was the, the attendance was down compared to a few years ago. But it's quite it's extraordinary what that event has become. Uh, you know, the yeah. East Coast San Diego thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So w- at the con, were, what were you selling this time around? Were you selling? I mean, do you have a booth? And-
1: I Yeah, I had two tables in Artist Alley. And it was a combination of things. Um, I brought uh, several boxes of old uh, back-issue undergrounds that were very popular because hardly anyone else carries those. I also had um, uh, any books that I'd written or were written about me, you know, related things on the table. I had 3D posters that I do that are eye-catching for people who – Aren't interested in the uh, the more esoteric material, and then finally I brought several uh, valises vel- with the uh, Will Eisner art and Howard Cruz art uh, since that. we represent them.
0: Mm-hmm. And were you selling your own original art also?
1: No, I've avoided that. I I find it awkward to sell my own art. Um, when I occasionally do that, I go through uh, art dealer Scott Eater. Oh, okay. He, he's just more ob- objective, you know. I i can tell you how much this will eisner drawing in my hands is but i can't tell you what mine is i'm just too close to it
0: too close to it yeah uh but i i guess i can understand that but at the same time boy it's amazing to think that you're somewhat shy and and humble i guess in regard to your own work well i mean you're so much a part of uh, you know, everything that that's happened since 1969 and, uh, uh in yeah. and of itself, it's just incredible.
1: Well, I should, I should put an asterisk on my own art. I, I have a chipboard art collection that the back cover is deliberately blank on chipboard so that I can draw on it. So if people bought that book and pay a little extra, I will do a drawing on the back. And, uh, I posted some of those on Instagram, if any of your listeners are on. So that's one thing I will do, but I don't bring old art.
0: Do you know offhand your Instagram handle, Dennis? Yeah, it's, uh, it's
1: Dennis underscore kitchen underscore art.
0: Okay, great. Great. So uh, if you're looking for Dennis online, find him on Instagram at at Dennis underscore kitchen underscore art. Yeah, you're doing a lot uh, on chipboard or you always have drawn on chipboard as opposed to any kind of more archival material. Uh, What is it that attracts you to working on that material?
1: You know, I discovered it accidentally when I was still at kitchen sink And uh, the company got big enough to where we had regular staff meetings. And if you've ever been in a staff meeting, they they can often be boring. And so I used to have these, you know, what what do you call, like these uh, eight and a half by 11 or sometimes legal size pads. Mm -hmm. And the back of the pad is chipboard. I would find if I flipped it over when I was bored, if I had a Sharpie pen and then just a regular like a black uniball pen, that combination was really fun. That the paper just really interacts with the the Sharpie and the ballpoint in a way that was very pleasing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found myself doing it more and more, even when there wasn't a boring staff meeting. And uh, now I've just adopted it as a, a favorite medium. And I, I don't fan know anyone else who who does love it. Maybe they just never tried it. And, and the other reason I like it is um, if I'm doing a conventional comic strip page for publication, I, you know, do that on regular illustration board and I rule it out, and I pencil first, and then I ink carefully with a brush and letter carefully. It's a very methodical procedure, and it allows me to make corrections. Mm -hmm. And when I'm drawing on chipboard, it's unforgiving, and it's dangerous. And I love that because you can't take a line back. You can't erase it. And I also like it because it's a totally spontaneous experience. Um, it's, It's what I call stream of conscious drawing mm-hmm.
0: and yeah. oh i'm sorry go ahead
1: and so it's just very different so i'm proud of both but when i look at the a chipboard drawing that comes out well i just think wow i walked the tightrope, tight rope um and and it worked whereas with a finished page it's like well you know of course it looks good because i made seven corrections
0: so it's like the the um difference or the distinction between making product and and just being expressive whereas the one you just feel
1: I think expressive. so and not and and <laughs> not that I'm fond of the word product but right. but I get what you're saying yep
0: yeah well you know i um it's it's um it, one of the one of the things i i've told students over the years when when we're talking about painting or something like that the distinction between illustration and painting is painting is very much about the material and the process and that becomes very much the subject whereas like when you're dealing with illustration image and the end goal are really what it's about it's not so much about the process although the process is very interesting to anybody who's engaged in it obviously and we all get caught up in it but to the viewer anyway um it's a there's a distinction there and so you know when you're playing around with with uh, your sharpie on chipboard it's really unfettered in a lot of ways and it's really about where that pen and where you want to go as opposed yeah, to exactly having, yeah,
1: yeah so yeah as another artist you can appreciate that and uh and and it and you did your point is well taken that if I'm doing a comic page it's going to appear in a in a publication or on a cover with and an, an audience anticipated for most of the years I was doing chipboard they weren't intended for anyone to see unless you happen to be sitting next to me at at one of these uh, boring meetings mm-hmm. and so I would just literally throw them in a drawer. And some years later, my uh, agency partner, John Lind, uh, discovered them, and he encouraged me to have some of them collected. And so I worked with uh, Boom Studios back in, I think, 2009 or 10, and they came out with this book they called Dennis Kitchen's chipboard sketchbook and now after that came out i started being a little more self-conscious about it and i also started doing them more often because i realized well maybe there are a few people who would enjoy it so now i'm actually putting together a second i think far superior collection that will be published uh late this year or january from uh, tinto press in uh, denver
0: Oh, that's great. Uh, you know, I was wondering, I know in one of our back and forths you had mentioned deadlines looming. And I was wondering what the deadlines might be. And is that one of those that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, that's one of them. Um, I'm I'm pulling what I think are the best 150 or so since that last book. And my wife, Stacy, is scanning them all. And we've got to get them to Ted Interricio, who runs Tinto Press uh, mm-hmm. shortly um are, are you working he'll oh, be he'll be using a kickstarter model i believe
0: oh sure yeah i mean so well, i was just thinking about how distinct it is i mean one of the things that's so different from back in the day um and maybe well and but has kind of the spirit of it in a way is the kickstarter model is really so interesting because anytime you go into kickstarter there's like twenty thousand comics projects around from around the oh, world right. what's that I I was just laughing at that. Yes. It's amazing. And and it's changed in a lot of ways. I mean, while we don't see the impact in terms of big numbers or, you know, the news uh, or comics news focusing on this, that or the other thing. I mean, the amount of material and the diversity of material is just overwhelming. Yeah. You know, and uh, in a lot of ways that that harkens back to the beginnings of the underground in a way, the way that the underground percolated up kind of spontaneously uh in the late
1: 60s that's a good point um and i can tell you as someone who was a publisher pretty much full-time for 30 years um i love the kickstarter business model um for the kinds of books i want to do and i'll give you a perfect example Mm -hmm. um I, i i was for many years a big fan of of an early uh Early century illustrator named Harrison Katie, Cady. C A D Y. I loved his stuff, and at Kitchen Sink, I periodically tried to get a collection of his going, and I was always talked out of it by the people on my staff I trusted to handle sales and marketing, because they basically said to me, Dennis, there's not many people besides you who want to read this. It it it, it will not only not be profitable, will you know, will take a big loss on it and that'll affect our christmas bonus so don't do it and so <laughs> so i listened to their wise counsel i furrowed my brow and i just said all right next year and it never happened because we could not come up with the numbers that would work however with kickstarter i worked with beehive books in philadelphia who is they're they're wonderful And they were able to make a profit with only eight or 900 original subscribers. And my daughter, Violet, who co-authored the book with me, she and I both received a very nice advance and subsequent royalties on a book that still, you know, will probably sell no more than 2,000 or 2,500 copies. Prior to that, with the old model, uh, I would have had to have sold a minimum of 3000 just to break even or make a modest profit. And the reason is, um, you know, normal publishers have to sell their books wholesale, often at a deep discount to distributors and places like Amazon. Whereas with Kickstarter, you have individuals willing to pay full retail, mm-hmm. and that just th- changes the numbers so much better for books that are kind of obscure you know
0: sure so. yeah I'm, I'm i just pulled this up and I, I i'm sorry i wasn't aware of this before but I, i'm just saying this for anybody who's okay. listening to this this is one not only are the illustrations just fantastic i mean mind-blowingly beautiful but um, the book itself is one gorgeous product. I mean, one gorgeous book. It's it's uh, I'm sorry I use that. word. <laughs> well, thanks. But,
1: I'm, I'm impressed that you can conduct an interview in online shop at the same time.
0: <laughs> yeah. To, to the the ever vexation of my wife. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, my gosh, it's a it's this is a beautiful book. And I guess it went for one hundred and twenty five. Uh, yeah. dollars or so um, but it's not it, cheap
1: but it is gorgeous and it's large and um, yeah I think you get your money's worth and um, uh, Violet and I are actually shortly starting on a s- sequel to that
0: mm-hmm.
1: on the artist Boris Artsy Bashev, another one you're probably not aware of but I love just as much and that'll cool. be out in probably 2023 so you can bide your time
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I just pulled up some of his images too. And uh, again, just fascinating work so this is you know among the things that you do uh, and have always done you've always been a supporter of other artists and uh, uh you you've always you know um, done everything you could to support younger artists and and at the same time your love of history was evident all the way through your publishing years in kitchen sink because you brought new attention to you know venerable comic strips like you know uh, steve canyon and uh, mail call or alley oop or you know barney google or i mean in some sense you really in a lot of ways uh kicked off this kind of um well the library of american comics and their interest in in bringing back uh old comic strips and making sure there's beautiful packages available of that material uh i mean your love of history and and the history of illustration comics has been evident right from the beginning i think
1: Well, I think so. Um, I mean, originally it was just underground comics because I was one of those hippies creating underground comics. Mm -hmm. But I was also a fan. And when I was starting out, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, there just weren't collections of the classic stuff out there. There were a couple that were well-intentioned but used really poor source material like newspaper clippings, you know. No one was really tracking down – The syndicate proofs or the original art were available, that sort of thing. And so I wanted to do the material I wanted to see, and I wanted to do it uh, as properly as possible. So, yeah, it began really. It began really with Will Eisner, who allowed me to do The Spirit, and then it grew from there.
0: Yeah, and and that's a fascinating story in and of itself, because uh, speaking of conventions, you met Will. At a convention, a Phil Souling convention, right in uh, yeah. the early seventies.
1: Yeah, the very first one I ever attended in seventy-one.
0: And so that meeting must have been really interesting because you were uh, obviously of a very different generation than Will Eisner, and yet at the same time, he's the one who wanted to meet you.
1: Yeah, I know it doesn't even seem to make sense, <laughs> other than other than to give credit to Will for being unusually curious for his generation i mean i don't think there were any other artists his age and he was in his mid 50s when i met him i was in my i think i was 24 and he seemed like an old man to me but you know <laughs> a relative, right but right. but the thing is there weren't I, I i there might have been a small number but there was hardly anybody his age in the field who gave you know a damn Mm -hmm. what guys my age were doing, especially in the underground field. But again, he was not a typical artist. He was also a very savvy businessman. Mm -hmm. And he had heard from Phil Seuling that the underground comics were done in a very different way. And he was uh, curious to find out. So yeah, he, he called, he, he tracked me down at the show and had me come to his private suite at the hotel And he started peppering me with questions that I was at first confused by, but then I just realized he he wanted to know how the business model worked. For example, he heard that our books were sold on a non-returnable basis. Most fans don't care about that, but Will did. It's a big deal. He heard that the artists got to keep their own copyrights, keep their own art. All these things that um, were, you know, unheard of with mainstream comics publishers. So as I patiently tried to answer his questions, I, I tried to interject my own because I was curious about, you know, his generation and uh, and what he had done years earlier. And, and he would very briefly give me an answer, but then he kept pressing on, on what was contemporary because to him what mattered was what was contemporary. And as it turned out, you know, it ended up deeply influencing the direction he took in his own career.
0: Oh, absolutely. Sure. Um, I mean, that interaction with you not only led to his involvement with you and reprinting the spirit, but it also led to you publishing Almost all of his, I mean, all of his his graphic novels, right?
1: Most most of them, not quite all, because Kitchen Sink went under uh, in uh, 99 and he still had another four or five years that he was creating them. And uh, uh, DC Comics and Norton published the very last ones while I was no longer his publisher. I was then his literary agent.
0: Right, right. And so uh, that relationship with will, how did it develop then? Um, it was uh, became a friendship and uh, or a mentorship. Yeah, you know,
1: um well, it's funny. We both joked about how <clears throat> when we first met, we couldn't have looked more different, not just the age difference, I think the thirty years between us, but I was a prototypical hippie with hair down past my shoulders i had a scraggly beard i was wearing i think uh tie-dyed purple uh, bell-bottom pants um and will had a three-piece suit he was balding you know <laughs> he, he said he said a number of times later he said the only thing we had in common was we both smoked pipes but with different <laughs> substances it's <clears throat> great and uh so that first meeting um was encouraging but uh it it didn't end that well because after we talked about the underground he he confessed he had never actually seen any so he asked uh, if i could show him some examples so we went down to the floor where phil Suling himself had three or four tables covered with every conceivable underground that was out and i intended to you know, curate the selection, <laughs> because I knew some were some were pretty wild., yeah. but will g- grabbed an example before I could. and uh, he picked, um, I think it was Zap number two, and he opened to a page by S. Clay Wilson yeah. <laughs> that had um, uh, uh, I forget the, the 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 pirate Captain Piscums, I think his name was that had just chopped the dick off another pirate, had it in a fork, and he said, uh, the head tastes best. And that was Will's introduction to Undergrounds. And he blanched, and I think I blanched too. And um, and the funny thing is, it it led to a little mini-debate, because coincidentally, standing there at that moment was another hippie uh, cartoonist who no one had ever heard of at that time named Artie Spiegelman. (laughs) And Art immediately started defending Wilson. And uh, Will was, you know, getting his feathers ruffled a little. And finally, he said, well, gentlemen, I think I've seen enough. and And he walked off. And that could have been the very end of my, quote, relationship, unquote, with Will. But I had managed to get his business card. And after the convention, I followed up with a letter offered to send him um, other undergrounds for him to look at, and he accepted, and he looked at those. He liked them, and then I guess the rest is history. So so um, the follow-up and the persistence was uh, was really uh, the key mm-hmm. to mm-hmm.
0: what could have, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, been. Well, um, now, I'm, I'm just curious. Um, how had you been introduced to will's work prior to that i mean had you seen the spirit i mean the spirit was only published in relatively few newspapers
1: yeah no absolutely you're right i had only seen it really in a couple of places first uh harvey kurtzman uh ran a story in his help magazine Mm -hmm. it was one of those classic sans serif stories from Mm -hmm. january 1950 that you know still one of my favorites And so that certainly piqued my curiosity. But in 1966, when I was 20, Harvey comics published two issues of the spirit that were mostly reprints, but included some new material. Oh. And so um, that was it. At that point in time, I had no access. I'd never seen any of the original newspaper inserts or any of the other reprints. So so based on that, you know... uh, it's like I said earlier, I I asked Will to reprint the spirit because I was curious to see them and I couldn't find them anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And his first response was, um, why would your readers be interested in something I did, you know, in the 40s and 50s? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, it's just a gut feeling. I think, I think, you know, we're not just a bunch of long-haired hot smoking guys who like to draw uncensored comics were fans of what came before at least the best stuff. And my gut is that I can sell enough. If you trust me, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. and it, and it proved right. Um, And it proved so right that Jim Warren swept in and stole. Yeah. (laughs) Stole the spirit.
0: Yeah. I, I, that's actually, I had come across spirit stuff. I'm, I'm a, few years younger than you. And I'd come across the spirit in the mid seventies through Jules Pfeiffer's book. Right. Um, uh, maybe it's the early seventies. And that was my introduction to it, but that was only one story. And it wasn't until Warren came out, uh, because we lived in a small town and, uh, I know, ne- and I was probably too young too, to see those original kitchen sink spirits. So that brings a question to my, my mind, where were those original, um, reprints of published by kitchen sinks sold with i'm trying to imagine them being sold in head shops and that that somehow strikes me as incongruous well but many of them were and um the rest
1: at that point in time i think 71 i think was when i first did it there were just the beginnings of the comic shop network just the beginnings and there were people like bud plant who he and his partners had a handful of shops in the San Francisco Bay Area, along with Gary Arlington. And they were, you know, popping up. You probably could count them on your fingers or in the dozens instead of the two or three or four thousand they eventually grew into. So it was that combination, along with the third thing, which was I had a strong mail order catalog audience. Oh,
0: yeah. And you were selling the, the catalog was selling comics. Was it selling merchandise also? Was that?
1: Yes, or, yes. Know. It was. It was called the the Krupp Order Catalog, and it was um, <clears throat> primarily comics, but it had everything else uh, a proper hippie needed, like pipes <laughs> and uh, you know uh, <clears throat> uh, day glow posters and uh, and that sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I'm just wondering if I would have run across it like, um, in know, in one of those Castle of Frankenstein's ad or something. Is that what I, I think it's found, Krupp, uh, or would I had to have gone to a head shop?
1: Well, if you were in a small town, I, I doubt you could have found them, I think. And that's the advantage Jim Warren had was Jim Warren said to, uh, to Will, look, I have newsstand distribution. Yeah. Uh, kitchen uh, can sell 20,000. I can print
0: two hundred thousand. But he didn't last at Warren. He came back to you.
1: Yeah. And I think it was a combination of factors. First of all, you know, God bless Jim Warren for many things, but he's not easy to get along with. Mm -hmm. I think there were some personality issues. Mm -hmm. But also, I think like a lot of magazines, the, the first issues start out really strong, but then the numbers gradually, you know, start fading. And I think it got to the point where maybe it was marginally profitable for him. And, um, you know, beyond that, honestly, Mm -hmm. I never pressed Will on the details. But after issue 16, Mm -hmm. he split with Warren and he called me and he said, do you think there's any life left in this magazine? And I Mm. said, "I, I sure do. And by that time, the comic market, had gotten a lot stronger and there were comics distributors and the head shops were by then you know fading out as the comic shops were Mm -hmm. growing so the timing was good and so not only was there some life left in it i i did from number 17 up to number 41 as i recall and at that point it still wasn't dead we then split the spirit magazine in two and we created a a new magazine called will eisner's quarterly and then i started the spirit comic book starting from the beginning
0: yeah and which is just incredible so how long did that the comic book run
1: comic book lasted i think 80 some issues and will eisner's quarterly eight or nine issues Mm -hmm. the quarterly was supposed to be a way for will to experiment with this new graphic novel format where he could serialize stories. I think the first one he tried in the quarterly was "Life um, on Another Planet," mm-hmm. which was originally called "Signal from Space," and um, and, and 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 we serialized a, another graphic novel or two also before. Um, I, I think that model just did not work. It's the model the Europeans have used successfully okay. for decades, but it didn't quite work in America. So. Right. So right. so we ended up after those first two or three serialization efforts, um, when he would do a new graphic novel, we would go straight to a book format.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, I think, as you were saying that, I was just thinking about how the ma- the uh, mainstream companies today, you know, they, they serialize these long-form superhero stories and then put them together in trade paperbacks, as they're called. Right. And, uh, and resell them, in a sense. Um, and how that, that seems to work, like as though the the American audience has gotten used to it. Or when it comes well, to superhero comics, maybe they just have different.
1: Well, have they really? I mean, to me... To me, newsstand comics are virtually dead. They just haven't admitted it. The, the yeah. circulations are down so low now. If you look at uh, ICV2 where Milton Greep shows the circulations uh, mm-hmm. of publications, I mean, even a lot of Marvel and DC titles that used to sell 100,000 or more yeah. are now selling in, in the teens. I mean, it's it's they're way, way down from what they used to be. Oh, yeah. at, I can remember when I was starting in the business, Marvel and DC I had an internal rule that a comic had to sell at least 100,000 to continue being published at all. Now, they would die to have 100,000. It's It's yeah. super rare. You know,
0: yeah, it's a strange it it really is. Yeah, very, very, very different. So. So, I mean, this is a side question. It really is is not material to necessarily what we're talking about, but it does strike me as somebody who's been in the business for as long as you have and seen, you know, really everything in terms of comics. Um, I mean, how do you see that that? you know, the economic model developing over the next, you know, 10 years or whatever? I mean, yeah. uh, you think Kickstarter is really, I mean, is it going to be increasingly, increasingly more geared towards things like that? Will the comic shops still uh, be around? Or do you think that's all going to well, kind of... Well,
1: I, I mean, I hope the comic shops can survive, but it's not easy, you know, in the best of conditions. I do think the the stapled comic by and large you know has seen its day when when they actually stop you know again anybody's guess but it it's not a sustainable model i'll just put it that way and uh, a lot of publishers i think use comic books as kind of a loss leader Mm -hmm. and they make their money with the trade paperback and in some cases with international sales yeah but but i think um Kickstarter will will probably, for the foreseeable future, be um, perhaps the strongest way for independent creators and independent comic publishers to make the numbers work. Um, but but again, remember, even like the Harrison Katie book we talked about earlier, that was primarily sold through Kickstarter, but then uh, Beehive printed extra books and those are sold through traditional outlets Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. it's really a two-prong attack um not to mention their own mail order like you missed the kickstarter if you order it now you'll probably order it directly from beehive so a kickstarter again kind of like my old system is three-pronged but I, i i do think the industry is 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 changing in, in in significant ways it's certainly very congested right now mm-hmm. while i'm glad to see there's lots of fans and there's lots of product there's also i think more product than the fan base can really mm-hmm. sustain you know and and I, and and you've got the giants like marvel and dc who can afford to Publish lost leaders because if they lose a few thousand dollars on the new superman they don't care if they make uh, you know millions on the movie and merchandise spinoff of a famous character and that's a business model no one else has except the giants Right,
0: right, right. Um, you know, it is uh, it is interesting. Um, I've had, you know, a number of people on the show who've uh, done Kickstarters, individual cartoonists and whatnot. And it's interesting how some of them have built up, been able to sustain not a, what I would call, you know, a great living, but a a living. I mean, uh, just through not only building up a fan base on Kickstarter, but then selling their prints and things like that. Um, it, it's It's viable for a lot of different things, but it seems to be enabling, you know, those who know how to work it well, to create something of a living for themselves. And that's a highly distinct from the idea of a publisher publishing multiple entities and, uh, working with a whole variety of artists to create a brand and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's kind of seems like a little more viable for individual artists and, uh, idiosyncratic approaches to, uh, to narrative and to comics in general.
1: It is, and I think it'll work for um, some number of creators who have something distinctive enough and good enough that they'll have a large enough audience. Can't work for everyone, right? And um, and 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 again, it's a question of. As you put it earlier, you know, uh, there are 20,000 comics projects being solicited, yeah. even an art and fan is only going to be able to support, you know, a relative handful of them. Yeah. Um, it's it's just not realistic that most people are going to make anything close to a living with that mm-hmm. But, so but what I like about it is it's not just for individuals, but for publishers. And again, I I speak as a multi-headed creature here, having been a publisher and an artist and a distributor and and so on. I I like it from both perspectives because as a <clears throat> as an author or creator <clears throat> at this point in my life, I do not want to deal with fulfillment issues and. You know, all the hassles that go with um, getting a book into the hands of customers. I want a publisher. And yeah. so it was, I was happy to work with Beehive, who takes care of everything, and I get my profit share in 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 the case of a single artist, yeah, you know, you might make X amount of money, but you've also got to devote a significant amount of your time doing more than creating. You or your spouse or someone you hire has to stuff these things in envelopes or cartons and go, go to the post office, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, sure. And, and deal with the printer.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it, it's it's nice that I think if you if you're able to print you know, smaller numbers and work with printers who do that with you. Um, You know, yeah, it's much more viable economically. You can do a book like Harris and Katie and sell it to, you know, uh, a comparatively small audience, but a big enough audience that ensures its success and uh, success for, you know, the book, success for the the author and the publisher. And uh, yeah, there's so many benefits to this model, I think, that are are really wonderful um but you're right it it'll it's not going to work for everybody but then nothing ever does so uh, yeah. you know but and, it's it's
1: and, and also to get back to what motivates anyone at this point in my career and you know most of my contemporaries have retired i'm still crazy enough to <laughs> still enjoy what i'm doing but at this point in my career i get satisfaction out of bringing Back somebody like a Harrison Katie or Boris R. T. Bashoff next, even if they only sell a couple thousand copies, because I feel good about it. I would rather do that than do a book on some, I don't know, name a topic that 20,000 or 200,000 people would buy. And yes, it would be more rewarding in a financial sense, but not as rewarding in an aesthetic sense. And with Kickstarter you can have both. And I would say with Katie I had both. And I hope with Artsy if I'll have both. So again,
0: right. yeah. Oh, I was gonna say, you know what I, I I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just thinking as I was looking at the book that this is the kind of book too that even though it may only end up in the hands of a couple thousand people, the couple thousand people are gonna be people who who probably are invested in this, uh, this history and this material and the art form. And so they'll take this and they will, you know, uh, either keep it in a collection or they will donate it to a library or it's already in libraries. And, um, and that keeps, you know, the artist's name in the, in the alive in the world and passes it along to other people. So it's, it's doing a great service in that regard too. Well,
1: you hit it on the nail, Jeff. Yes and especially the library part that's increasingly important to me Mm -hmm. so I, I i i get very tired of seeing uh too many comic collectors who will buy comics not necessarily even read them you know they want them so pristine they immediately go in a bag or they get encased by cgc and i understand the investment angle i i get it i'm not disparaging it per se but what I don't like is that so many comics literally go unread and mm-hmm. I think unappreciated because the collectors have to preserve them as artifacts, not as items to read. When right. I do the kind of books I'm doing now, I expect the people who buy them actually read them. Yes. And That's important.
0: Well, it's, it's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because, well, this is what my experience of comics is as a, as a cartoonist and as a a artist. And, um, and it was to me what, was great about comics wasn't that it wasn't the characters so much, although, you know, whatever, as a kid growing up, you love what you love, but, uh, it was the artists who were interesting to me and it was, you know, I followed artists and, and I took those comics and copied everything out of them that I could and, and flipped through them over and over again. And to this day, that's still, you know, and I think that cartoonists are, are Like this in general we just we pour over the comics and and soak up everything we can soak up you know from those comics I have absolutely no although I have a collection I have absolutely no interest in its monetary value it's the value it has artistically and what it can pass along to myself and then to somebody else as art as an art form you know because art is about a dialogue uh, between you know the artists who create the work and those who who engage in it and read it, it's they didn't make the work in order to put it in a, a plastic envelope. You know, it's meant right. to be engaged, and I think that's one of the things that uh, the collection, you know, uh, the idea of putting it in one of those plastic uh, envelopes from uh, those graders or whoever um, just defies that purpose. I mean, you can't cracking those things open is just such a pain in the, a- in the ass. <laughs> you know, it yep. defies. I
1: I agree. That said, if you find an action number one in your (laughs) attic, you probably think differently.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So true. So true. Well, anyway, um, so, you know, in your career, I mean, you've you've worked with just about, I mean, so many different people and so many disparate people and people of very different temperaments. Uh, You know, I can't imagine trying to handle all of those different personalities. And um, among the the masters, if you will, that you worked with was uh, Harvey Kurtzman. And um, so how was that interaction distinct from working with Will? And uh, what were some of the highlights of that? well they were both
1: mentors to me person on a personal level and they were both creators I regard as genuine geniuses mm-hmm. that said they were very different personalities they approached their 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 art very differently and and uh, and they were both a pleasure to work with Harvey was um, you know remarkable in in many ways I, I certainly was more familiar with his work when i was young because i avidly sought out uh, mad both the early magazines and the comics and i was also lucky enough to run across uh, the humbugs mm-hmm. when they were out of print i just lucked across the stash and um <clears throat> as i was just beginning to collect um, his help magazine was coming out so so um harvey was um a more direct influence early on will I discovered a, a bit later. But um, Harvey to me was just a, an, an insanely inventive fellow who uh, shaped the form in, in distinct ways. In in again, use the term disparate. How disparate is something like two-fisted tales from mad. Mm-hmm. Now, he could handle humor. He could handle uh, you know, really raw war stories and war stories in a way that weren't being handled by anyone else uh, doing comics. And Matt, of course, was a huge influence, uh, especially after it became a magazine and hit newsstands and reached an older audience. Uh, its its impact is, you know, really impossible to, to ever gauge, but we know it was substantial. Um, I... Uh, you know, I learned more about Harvey's career later when I got to know him and I got to, you know, handle mm-hmm. his archives and and so forth. There's a lot of wonderful things he did that are very obscure today that ought to be uh, more available to fans, but it is what it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, does anything come to mind in regard to, to that? I mean, specifically uh, things that are not well known
1: Sure. Well, he did some amazing illustrations for Pageant Magazine. Wow. I think the only one or two originals survived. One is available as a print. It's called uh, Times Square 1960, where he actually went to an old school uh, arcade gallery, which uh, had old fashioned, uh, you know, arcade games and uh, mm-hmm. Just a lot of sleazy merchandise that was sold on the side in Times Square. But he did a series of those. And uh, as far as we know, unless they're sitting uh, somewhere undiscovered, they were destroyed by Pageant oh. Magazine, as oh. was typical in those days when illustrations like comic art was published. It was kind of regarded as less than useful afterward. Um so those ideally would be uh, collected in a book, but the source material is yeah. only the magazine, and those are pretty coarsely reproduced, you know, Yeah. magazines on really pulpy paper and so on. But even uh, some of the things he did for even Marvel, you know, uh, aside from, hey, look, mm. he did other things for Marvel that have never been collected that are overdue. Um even the Hey Looks I I published uh, right. back in the I think the 80s, but they need to be reprinted because there's a whole new generation doesn't know Hey yeah. Look. They they might see things like say a John Kricfalusi's Ren and Stimpy. That whole school of animation art was deeply influenced by Harvey's Hey Look. But most people who are fans of that animation probably haven't seen the material that influenced it. Um, there are a lot of uh, one shots that Harvey did for Esquire magazine that are short, two, three, four pages. I collected one of them, uh, The Grasshopper and the Ant, which was his kind mm-hmm. of beat- beatnik take on the Aesop fable, which I think is amazing. But um, all of that Esquire material should also be collected. And uh, it, it just. Uh, again requires the time the energy the right publisher if i if i can't do it myself i'm happy to talk to any publisher listening who'd be interested <laughs> but but to, to me pe- people like kurtzman and Eisner, their entire work or you know they i mean yeah they maybe 100% is too strong but the vast majority of their work ought to be continually available in print absolutely as a, as a reference library for serious fans and researchers.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Uh, And it's the kind of thing that, you know, um, younger cartoonists who are coming up, who are interested, find themselves interested in the history of absolutely, you know, Um, I mean, one of the things that is great is uh, those first mad comics are continually reprinted one way or another. And uh, on all of this stuff makes its way online, uh, which is one of the great things about that. But um, so, you know, I mean, Harvey Kurtzman was was. There are a couple of th- I'm just thinking of a couple of things as we're, we're speaking. And, you know, Harvey Kurtzman is like one of those great artists who, who a school is formed around in a sense that he opens the door to so many, uh, and it's not to say Will Eisner do- didn't either, but Harvey Kurtzman seems to have just like w- what he did enabled a whole school of comics to grow up around him that in turn influenced a whole nother generation after that and so on and so forth. And that through mad magazine, uh you know in his approach to satire i mean he he really opened the door to satire in the late 60s and that took the form of underground comics <clears throat>
1: yes um and there's not enough satire in my opinion
0: <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> when when I, when I used to compliment harvey about his satire he would roll his eyes and he would say yeah satire that's what George S. Kaufman, George S. Kaufman, is it? The the playwright said satire is what closes on Saturday night, meaning <laughs> <laughs> it's never successful. Was his point? And though Mad certainly was successful, it morphed and it morphed into a magazine named mostly at you know teenagers. Uh, the the last few issues of Mad that I ever picked up had you know booger jokes. It, it wasn't really satire. Mm-hmm. Um, And it actually reached its peak, you know, under uh, Feldstein's editorship. And Feldstein had watered it down too Mm -hmm. from, in my opinion, from what Harvey was doing, but you can't argue with the numbers. You know, Mad was selling a couple million copies or so a month uh, uh, under Feldstein and and Gain supervision. And while it was very successful during Harvey's briefer run, it never reached a couple million in sales. Um, you know, one one of those big ifs in comics history is what if Harvey hadn't quit Mad mm-hmm. and gone to join Hefner to create the ill-fated Trump magazine? Mm-hmm. And there are those who argue, and and I think they have a good point, that Harvey could not have sustained his Mad indefinitely, that um, for a number of reasons, and uh, and and it would not have been as successful as the Feldstein run, which appeal to perhaps a lower common denominator that's it's 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 an interesting debate
0: mm-hmm.
1: but 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 you can't deny kurtzman's impact
0: no, no. and i was just thinking that you know satire really thrived in the undergrounds i mean you know so much of the material can be looked at as uh, as I mean, there's many other things going on in in, in it also also obviously, but I mean it's a very rich um, library of material, but satire seemed to be the guiding impulse behind so many uh, of the artists' work, so many of the cartoonists who were working on um, this idea that, you know, straight culture was something that had been so, I mean, in some ways, so molded into this image that was just rife for, you know, for uh, ridicule in a way. And, right. and that seemed to be, you know, the late 60s seemed to be the perfect time. It was not only... Uh, It was a generational thing, too. It it sort of coincided with the the coming of a different generation with different attitudes.
1: It was. I mean, look, every generation views what came before with a certain cynical and hypocritical eye. And if you're a satirist or humorist, you'd tap into that because that's a rich source of material. And those of us who were you know reaching a professional age in the late 60s and early 70s we had a lot to satirize and we had a lot to complain about we mm-hmm. had you know the Vietnam War certainly was the thing that unified my generation largely but there are all these other issues going on that that perhaps uh, you know a previous generation didn't grapple with or or didn't recognize things like uh, civil rights uh, women's rights uh, mm-hmm. gay rights uh, legalizing marijuana and so on are always issues and today's generation has its own rich vein to tap but i, I was glad that in the case of my generation we had uh, a harvey kurtzman kind of guiding the way and basically we we, we learned uh, uh, from a master
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So is there something about satire that you think is um, appreciated more by younger people than by older people? I mean, when we're talking about those satirical publications that have found an audience and been successful – I mean, uh, we're talking about mad certainly, but then, you know, when we talk about the undergrounds too, we're talking about, they were speaking to their generation, which was a younger generation. Um, and, and as you've said about will, and probably about a lot of older people, they, they couldn't get into them at that time. I'm just wondering if there's something about satire and youth that goes hand in hand.
1: I think so because look, if you're in your twenties and you're looking at the older generations that are running the country and running corporations and so forth, you see a myriad flaws, hypocrisies. You just see things that are more obvious to you with your fresh eyes. If you're part of the generation that's running things, you start getting complacent about it. You don't mm-hmm. necessarily see uh, your own hypocrisies and your own, you know, Mm -hmm. stupid patterns i I think it always takes fresh eyes and it's not limited of course to fresh eyes i mean you can be in your 70s or your 90s and still be a satirist but i think it's much easier when you're new to the world and you look around and you go what what the f is going on here
0: (laughs) yeah Uh yeah i think i think you're right you know it's kind of interesting to think about um so there are a couple of, um, questions hanging in my mind. And w- one of those, you met Harvey by, um, uh, introducing him or, or bringing him out to the university of Wisconsin for a talk. Was
1: That's when I first met him in person. Yes. But I, I my first connection was, um, I sent him a copy of my first comic mom. Oh, yeah. Number one. And I didn't, really expect a response, but I got an encouraging letter and I sent one back and then he responded. And it was just like, again, that generation, they were letter writers. I did the same thing with Stan Lee and Will and others. If you wrote a letter, they tended to write back. And then before you knew it, you were pen pals. That's impossible today. Uh, And even if you had someone's email today and you got a response, it's not the same as getting a physical letter oftentimes i mean cartoonists often would you know even doodle on the letter or illustrate the envelope it was it was i i I so miss real letters and um you know again i'm not to disparage email i i I live by it but i sure miss uh, getting paper in in the mailbox and so once Harvey and I established that kind of back and forth phone call, I mean, letters leads to phone calls. And then eventually, uh, like you mentioned, I, I I got a gig with the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee that I had uh, just graduated from, and I got a budget from them to teach a, a, a class in comics history. Mm-hmm. And it, it had a budget to bring in a guest speaker, and so I immediately thought of Harvey and I think I had $500 to pay his airfare and an honorarium and hotel. And, um, I was stunned to find out when he accepted, but he said, it's the first time he had ever been invited. And I thought, oh my God, how is that possible? Um, but it just shows you that early on, and that was, I think 70, 70, 71, Uh um, no one still was really paying close attention to comics. Uh, it was still in the infancy of being taken seriously,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea of teaching a history class and it was on a university campus was groundbreaking, but also probably uh, you know, I, what's the word sneered at uh, by academics? Or...
1: <laughs> exactly,
0: sure. yeah. But so um, now, is this true that that there was a snowstorm around that time and that Harvey had to sleep well, on
1: the- you now we're, you're conflating two different uh, incidents? OK, um, um, a little later, I think it was 75. OK, I arranged for a exhibit of cartoon art at the University of Wisconsin in Oshkosh. And for that one. Um, yes, Harvey came out, and I also brought out Robert Crumb and the members of his band. Oh. and, and uh, some other cartoonists like uh, Dale Messick. Uh, oh, my gosh. And uh, an editorial cartoonist named Bill Sanders. And so it was, uh, we call it a cartoonorama. And Crumb's band was supposed to play some night in February when, of course, Wisconsin delivered a a true blizzard. And so, yes, Harvey and uh, the other fellows were staying at my home, which was a a farm, really, originally, in uh, a little town about 30 miles from Oshkosh. And so getting them to the venue and back was a nightmare. And uh, Harvey joked about it. I put jokes and quote that he, that I almost caused him to, you know, die in Wisconsin.
0: Oh, my my gosh.
1: Harvey, of course, flew to Wisconsin in February wearing nothing but um, a shirt open to his navel.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And wondered why he was cold.
0: (laughs) He obviously wasn't familiar or didn't think much about Wisconsin, but uh, in February weather. Uh, but Dale Messick, too. That's interesting. You know, that that's a name you don't hear uh, talked about very often these days. The cartoonist behind um, Brenda Starr. Right. And uh, that's that's one that's waiting for a collection, I think. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I met her at a I think it was the University of Illinois in uh, Elgin, maybe uh, not one of the main campuses. She was there with the the Art Director of Newsweek and me. For some reason, the three of us were at some symposium, and I got along with her very well and I got her contact info. and then, when this cartoon was being planned, I thought, you know what we need we need some women involved." and sure. uh, Back then, there weren't that many. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, no, she was a groundbreaker uh, among right. several. But in yeah, fact, but-
1: even her name—you know, Dale was not her real name. She she pulled kind of a George Sanders by calling herself Dale. Yeah,
0: yeah that's right. Okay, uh, I, I remember reading that someplace. Now that you mention it, oh wow. So, you know, we were—you—you'd t- sent moms homemade comics number one to Harvey Kurtzman and to other people I know at the at the time when it was published. But were you prepared, I mean, for for what followed after? I mean, was that something that you even conceived of as possible? Because it seemed to that comic again, you know, that comic was a groundbreaking comic and it's seen in the same light really as as Bijou Funnies number one and Zap and a number of things that were being published in 68, 69. I mean, were you prepared for what that opened the door to? I mean, it seems like... No,
1: not at all. Mm-hmm. Not at all, Jeff. Um, when I did that comic, it was intended for a Milwaukee audience alone. It it really... When I attended UWM, I co-created the first satire magazine called Snide. Mm-hmm. And uh, we produced one issue, and then I was supposed to... Uh, I was the art director, and the first one was the inherited it as the editor for the second issue. But the first editor ran off with the entire treasury of oh. uh, I think uh, eight hundred dollars and went to Mexico and probably got high for many months while I was left with an empty bag and unable to do a second issue. So all the material that I had started to prepare for what was going to be an all comic book issue became, Mom's homemade comics instead of Snide Number Two, and so it it had a lot of local jokes in it, jokes that I didn't expect anyone outside of Milwaukee or Wisconsin to get. And so I printed four thousand because that was how many I could afford to print. I just I literally went to a printer and I said, "I have X dollars, how many can you print?" And you know, he got a notepad and he said four thousand. So. I ended up distributing most of those on the east side of Milwaukee, which was the hip area where hippies were, and sold 3,000 just in one district of Milwaukee. Incredible. And uh, my roommate at the time, that was the summer of 69, was headed to Woodstock, and I still had 1,000, and he said, how about I take some to Woodstock? And I, I didn't know what Woodstock was, but I said, sure. So he took 500 there. And then the last 500 went to San Francisco to Gary Arlington's uh, uh, comic book shop, I think was the first in the country. And so that's how 4,000 disappeared. And the 1,000 that left Wisconsin were kind of an unexpected bonus. And um, the ones in San Francisco sold out very quickly because there was a huge demand in San Francisco. And Gary asked me, to send him more. And I said, well, you got the last of them. And that's how I ended up being briefly published by Printment, because Mm -hmm. they were willing to reprint it. And I thought, great. I don't want to be a publisher. I want to be a cartoonist. Mm -hmm. And if I had not felt that they were treating me unfairly, um, stronger words might be ripping me off. (laughs) If I had not felt that way, I would have continued to be a cartoonist as long as I could sustain a living. But they did not treat me right. And so I got angry and I said, well, damn it, I can do this myself. I've done it before. And when I told my friends Jay Lynch and Skip Williams in Chicago that I was going to do the next comic myself, they said, well, we don't like print mint either. Will you publish ours. And that was literally the first thought in my head that I might be publishing anybody else's. And I very stupidly and quickly said, sure, why not? Two is as easy as one, which doesn't make any sense. Um, But then I published Bijou and suddenly, and I was very conscientious as you might imagine because uh we both knew how the print mint operated and i wanted to show jay and skip that i was serious about this so i went to great pains to get them a proper accounting and really hustle and get the books out there and it paid off the books did well and it led to then more bijou and crumb passing through town and offering me his new book which ended up selling in six figures and it just grew like topsy i guess uh It was never something I planned.
0: Okay, we will call it a day here. Part two is going to come winging its way towards you very, very shortly. So be on the lookout for that. It's gonna be out there sooner rather than later. So keep an eye open. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You wanna find out more about Dennis Kitchen, you can go to his website, denniskitchen.com. That's D-E-N-I-S, kitchen.com. Uh, Follow him on Instagram at Dennis underscore... Kitchen underscore art on Instagram, okay. And remember, it's Dennis spelled with one N, D E N I S. You can follow me, of course, on Instagram at Greenscreen Comic. That's where I'm posting most of my stuff these days because I'm working on a comic book called Greenscreen. And you can follow me there to get all the latest news and updates, as well as get a hint of some of the, the new work that I'm I'm putting out there in relationship to Greenscreen and other things too. So follow me on Instagram. Instagram at Greenscreen Comic. You can also find out more about me at JeffGrogan.com. That's G-E-O-F-F G-R-O-G-A-N.com. And of course, if you want to support this podcast, you can check me out on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. For those of you who do contribute, uh, see your way to contributing any amount, every now and again, something's going to show up in the mail for you that's just a little bit special. So uh, try to make it worth your while. And thank you for anything that you can see your way to sending to the support of this show. Thanks again. We will be coming towards you very, very quickly with part two of my interview with Dennis Kitchen. And until then, thanks for listening.